So we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 2 to 16 today. It says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, and fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort from which he was comforted by you. And he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because the Spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So I grew up playing ice hockey. I was very competitive when I played hockey. Um, I wasn't always the best player on my team, uh, but I was one of the better players, and I wanted to be the best player. I kept track of how many goals I scored and how many goals everybody else scored, and I wanted to be the best player on my team. And like I said, I wasn't always the best, but I was usually towards you know, the top of the pack. You know, When there was a power play, I was often one of the guys that were out on the ice. Then I joined a high school hockey team, and it was varsity, so it was 9th to 12th grade. I was a sophomore, and we had a lot of good players. And the coach that I was playing under, he was the, he was the coach that would be like, if he didn't feel that you should go on the ice, he would just sit you. Now, I had grown up, you know, where it, you know, everyone would just kind of play equally. Everyone would play every third shift, and it would just kind of be equal ice time. It was different when I got to that environment. If he didn't want you to play, you weren't going to play. So I'm a sophomore, joined the team, I think it was the first or second game, I didn't play very much. I wasn't used to that. So I remember on the way home, I was talking to my dad, and I was just, I just had this terrible attitude. I was just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what he's thinking, I don't want to play anymore, like, why am, I, why am I sitting on the bench and not playing? And my dad was encouraging, and he's like, oh, they got a lot of good players, you're a sophomore. And I wasn't having it. I was like, you know that one guy, Bobby? I, I'm so much better than him, and yet he's on the ice all the time, and I'm not playing. Now, again, my dad was always encouraging, and after the games, he would point out the good things that I did. But in this moment, he gave me a much-needed dose of reality, and he told me, no, he's actually a lot better than you. 
And I was devastated. And I was devastated not because he said it, because I knew he was right. And I wasn't used to dealing with that. I was used to being one of the better players on the team, and here I am being one of the worst players on the team. So part of me just wanted to quit. So I had to, and thankfully my dad encouraged me to keep going and keep trying, and then I got more opportunities and got more ice time. But I didn't know how to deal with that. I knew how to be at the top of the pack, but I didn't know how to deal with not playing very much, kind of being one of the lesser players. And I think sometimes in, in the Christian life we kind of feel the same way. You know, when we hear Christian teaching or a message or read Christian books, often the message that we're told is, be a good Christian. Have it all together. You want to have a good marriage. You want to be obedient. You want to live a joyful life. You want to avoid temptation. And those are all great things. We should strive for those things. And it's not wrong that, that we would say those things. But then often we hit this reality that we often fail. We often fall short of the standards that we set for ourselves and, of course, the standards that God sets for us. And so we fail and, and fall short of those standards. And, and the thing that trouble we have is we're told how to be a good Christian. We're not told how to be a Christian that fails, that struggles. And I think we have that trouble sometimes knowing how to deal with failure, how to deal with the fact that we don't have it all together, how to deal with the fact that we're broken. I think we forget, of course, that nearly all the heroes of the faith, I would argue all heroes of the faith, dealed, dealt with profound failure. You think of Abraham, you know, he was made this promise by God that he would have a child, and time passed by, and he didn't believe that God was actually going to do it. He took matters into his own hands. You had Isaac that showed favoritism. You had Jacob that was the deceiver, deceived his father out of the birthrights. You have David who committed adultery and murder. You had Jesus' disciples that failed to believe in him, failed to stay faithful to him. We're in, in it for their own pride and glory rather than the glory of Christ. You had Paul, murdered Christians. The road to becoming a godly person is often a road of failure. It's a road of failing ahead. We forget that sometimes. doesn't mean that it's a good thing. It's just the reality. It's just something that should grieve our hearts that we fail, we fall short. But it's just the reality of who we are as sinners in this broken world. We try the, the best that we can. We want to be the best Christians we can be. We want to honor Christ with our lives, but sometimes we fall short. The question is, how do we deal with that failure? Because if we don't know how to deal with that failure, Satan can take that failure and he, he can use it to just destroy us. And I think in this passage, Paul gives us kind of a template for how to deal with failure. As he looks at uh, the story of how the Corinthians dealt with their sin and failure, I think it can be instructive for how do we deal with that sin and failure. And specifically, he talks about godly grief. And he's talking about godly grief. It's grief over who we are or what we've done. And that's what we're talking about today. That's what Paul is talking about today. And he shows us three things about that grief, that grief over things that we've done or grief over who we are. The first thing he shows us is, again, that it is godly grief, that there is a reality of godly grief, that grief is never pleasant, but sometimes it can be good. Look at what he says again in verse 5. He says, for even though I made you grieve, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. 
I think it's a very honest statement there. He says, I don't regret the fact that I grieve you, but at one time I did. I mean, Paul really cared about the Corinthians, and they were doing some things that were wrong, and so Paul had to send a really harsh rebuke to them. And it grieved his heart to do that. It grieved him the fact that he was going to make the Corinthians very upset and very sad by his letter. But he knew it had a purpose. He knew it had a goal. Wasn't to make them sad so that they would end up in despair. It was kind of a warning system that something has to change, that you need to change your way. And grief can be kind of that warning system that something has to change. You think about the physical body and think about pain. And pain is kind of that warning system for the physical body. Pain gives us a, a, a kind of a warning that something is wrong. Now, there's a young lady uh, by the name of uh, Ashlyn Blocker. And uh, she has a rare genetic disease. It's called SIPA or anhydrosis. It's a rare genetic disorder. Uh, only a few people in the world have had it and she actually doesn't experience any pain. Now, we probably are thinking to ourselves, that, that would be awesome. It'd be awesome if my back didn't hurt anymore. It'd be awesome if I wasn't experiencing any pain. But it created a host of problems for her. For example, when she was in uh, grade school, she'd go into school, and the cafeteria staff would have to put ice cubes in her soup because otherwise she had no sensation. She would just drink boiling soup and just drink it right down and burn herself. She bit her tongue several times. She cut her finger, almost bit her finger, uh, bit her finger severely one time. Uh, you had family pictures of her, and it, she was always kind of beat up because she had no sensation of pain. She'd run into something and wouldn't phase her. Uh, one picture, it was uh, Christmas time. She was in a Christmas dress, hair uh, combed, but a swollen lip, missing tooth, puffy eye, Athletic tape wrapped around her hands like a little boxer. Her mother said this, pain's there for a reason. It lets you know something's wrong, and it needs to be fixed. I'd give anything for her to feel pain. Now, of course, pain goes haywire, and, you know, it goes to a point where it's not really warning us anymore. It's just kind of debilitating to us. But pain has an instructive function. It warns us that something is wrong. And grief in our fallen world can do the same thing. I don't think that we were ever made to grieve. I think in, in, in the original creation, we wouldn't grieve. We live in a fallen world, and so grief uh, over who we are, grief over the, our broken relationship, grief over our loss, it happens. Now, again, grief can go haywire where we just kind of go, go off the deep end and dry, are driven to despair. But also grief can have an instructive purpose. When we realize we've done something wrong, we feel that guilt uh, the, the Holy Spirit gives us. And we feel that godly grief, it can be instructive. And the thing is, when we're feeling grief over who we are or things that we've done, we need to realize what is the, the cause? What is the root of that? And we need to kind of ask ourselves questions. And maybe it's something we don't really need to be upset about. Maybe it's something uh, that we need to let go. And maybe we need to focus on the promise of God. But sometimes it may be something that we need to change in our hearts. So Paul says, grief isn't always bad. Sometimes grief can be good. It can be instructive, even though it's never pleasant or painful. Or pleasant, uh, it can be instructive. And that leads us to the next thing that Paul shows us, that 
grief is uh, never pleasant, but it can be good. And the, the goal of grief, the goal of grief is repentance. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If grief is godly grief, it has one goal and one object, and that is change, repentance. If grief is caused by God, it's that we would change, that we'd be transformed. But Satan seeks to use that grief in a different way. He comes and he tries to destroy us with that grief. He comes to us and says, look at you. Look at what you've done. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. God could never use you for his kingdom. God could never forgive you of these things that you've done. You've really messed it up bad. And you might as well just kind of live your life and enjoy yourself because you don't have any chance of pleasing God. And it's an insane thing that Satan tells us, but oftentimes we buy into it. We believe this kind of insanity. Let's say you were, weren't able to swim. You were taken to the middle of the ocean, dropped in the middle of the ocean, struggling for dear life, flailing about, but you can't keep your head above water. You keep sinking below the surface. Then, about ten minutes later, you're almost at the point of giving up, and you see this boat in the distance coming towards you. You see a diver jump overboard to come and rescue you. You see a life preserver that's thrown just a foot away from you. And everything changes. Now what are you thinking in those moments? Before the boat arrives, you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to die. I can't swim. Even if I could swim, I don't have anywhere to swim to. The boat comes and everything changes and you're thinking, I'm going to be okay. They're going to, I'm going to grab hold of this, this lifeline, this life preserver. They're going to pull me in. This diver is going to help me get up on the boat. I'm going to be okay. Now, both sets of uh, conclusions were logical given the circumstances. You don't see any boat. You're all by yourself in the middle of the ocean. It's logical to think you're going to die. And if nothing else changed, you would die. It's also logical to believe that if there's a boat that's right next to you and they're throwing you a life preserver, it's logical to believe that you're going to be okay. But imagine you're in the water and the boat's coming towards you. You see the diver, the life preserver, and rather than grabbing hold of that life preserver, you turn around the other direction and you start swimming away. And you keep telling yourself, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. You're probably right. You probably are going to die. The thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. you got a lifeline right next to you. And so what happens is when we fail, Satan comes to us and he says, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're headed towards destruction. And there's a grain of truth in that. Because if nothing else changed, if we just live in our sin and we're headed for a place of destruction, we're going to die physically and spiritually. And so there's a grain of truth to that. But he doesn't tell us that right behind us is a life preserver. That Christ has given us a life preserver in his blood. And that all we have to do is grab a hold of that and he's going to pull us up out of that mire. See, what Satan wants to do is he wants us to focus on the water. He says, don't look that way. Don't look at the rescue. Just look at the water around you. You're going to die. Jesus wants us to see the water, but he wants us to see more clearly his rescue. And the fact that he can save us and bring us out of that mire that we've found, found ourselves in. 
Satan uses our failures to try to destroy us. God sends us this lifeline in Christ, and all we do is grab hold of that, and the way that we grab hold of that is by faith and repentance. Say, I got, God, I don't want to drown anymore. I need you to change me. I need you to bring me out of this mess that I found myself in. Satan has entrapped so many people in this. He's entrapped so many people when they fail and they never recover from it. Uh, John Piper notes that this, Pastor John Piper notes that this has happened to many people, uh, young people especially, who fail sexually. They're told, uh, don't sleep with anyone who's not your spouse, don't look at pornography. They're all good things. And yet they fail, and then they get to that place of failure, and Satan, and they don't know how to handle that. And Satan comes and says, look at what you've done. Your life is over. You're never going to please God. You've blown it. So you might as well just keep going, doing what, you, what you're doing. You might as well just enjoy yourself, because you're not going to please God anyways. Piper puts it this way. He says, in other words, what seems so tragic to George Verver, and he was talking about conference that he had seen, he says, as it does to me, is that so many young people were being lost in the cause of Christ's mission because they were not taught how to deal with the guilt of sexual failure. Note carefully how I'm saying it. They were not taught how to deal with the guilt of sexual failure. The problem is just not how not to not fail. The problem is how to deal with failure so that it doesn't sweep you away into a whole life of wasted middle-class mediocrity with no impact for Christ. So again, Satan tells us, we failed, we're done, just enjoy yourself, just keep on sinning, you don't have any chance of pleasing God, and what Satan does is he wants to make our sin into our identity. He wants to make our sin into our destiny. He says, because you failed, that's your destiny, you're a failure, you're going to continue in this path and you'll never be pleasing to God, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. What does the Apostle Paul say in the Spirit of Christ? The Spirit of Christ says to the Apostle Paul this, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. Sin doesn't have to be our destiny. We don't have to be headed for destruction. And if you're a believer in Christ, you've been made brand new. Your identity is a child of the King of Kings. You've been made righteous in Christ. He's declared us righteous on the basis of his son, and he's in the process of conforming us to the image of his son. He's making us righteous. And we need to make sure that we don't allow our failures to derail our holiness and derail our mission. Just because we fail doesn't mean that God is done with us. God can bring us out and bring us to new life. Sometimes we get stuck in the failures of the past. Uh, there's a psychological principle called the Zygernak effect, and Zygernak effect says that we tend to kind of put things that are completed into a different category than things that are uncompleted. So if something has a resolution, kind of has a bow on top, a good memory, we just kind of put that in a file. We don't think about those things. But things that are open, things that, you know, kind of run through our mind are, are open-ended. So we have failures and we don't have any resolution to those failures. You know, those things just kind of keep coming up. We just keep running through those things until we have a resolution, until they become kind of inactive. And the only way for us to kind of move those to that inactive state is by the love of Christ, the blood of Christ. So yeah, I've, I've failed. I shouldn't have done it. I failed. I can never fix it. I can't undo it. 
but Christ can still use me. Christ can forgive me. Christ can change me. And it's only as we experience the blood of Christ that we can move beyond those failures of the past where they don't consume us and they don't lead us to a place of destruction. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't have consequences. It has consequences, but it doesn't mean that God is done with us or can no longer use us. So that's the goal of godly grief. It's repentance. And then we finally see the result of godly grief. And the result of godly grief is improvement. Verse 11 says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proven yourselves innocent in the matter. See, when godly grief achieves its goal, repentance, the result is that God often strengthens us even through our failures. In the context of the Corinthians, we see that they have an increased desire for holiness an increased desire to support the Apostle Paul after their failure, after they repented of their failure. And as we look at our lives and see the areas that we failed and how God brings us up and rescues us from those things, it can actually increase our holiness through those failures. Again, it doesn't mean the failures are good things, but God can use those good things or use the failures for his glory. What are some positive things that can come out of our failures? can mean an increased desire for holiness. It means as we recognize where we were, we could recognize uh, the kind of the mire that we're in and how God rescued us from that, we'd have an increased desire for holiness because we don't want to go back there. We know what it's like to live in the pit and we don't want to live there anymore. So we can have an increased desire for holiness. We can have increased compassion. When God brings us out of the pit of sin and despair, we can better understand what other people are going through. We'll be less likely to be judgmental because we realize we're broken too. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. It can mean increased ministry. Say someone is struggling with alcoholism. Someone struggling with alcoholism could come to me, and I've never struggled with, with that personally, but I could pray with them. I could point to them to some verses but the, the, there's kind of a limit to how much I can help them because I don't know, I don't understand completely what that's like. But if you've gone through that and God has rescued you from that, you can help somebody else in need in a way that I could never help them. And there's things that I've gone through and failures that I have where I could help someone else that maybe you couldn't help someone else. And so God can use our failures to increase our ministry so we can help other people that are maybe going through the same things. It can mean increased confidence of our position in Christ. As God rescues us from the mire of sin, we can have a greater confidence that we are children of God, that God has rescued us, that God is conforming us to the image of Christ. It can mean increased focus. When we see, when we're drowning kind of in the sea of sin, all we can see is the sin around us. We kind of get lost in that water of sin, and that's all we can see. But then God brings us out and we can see life in a whole new light. And so God rescues us and gives us this increased focus, increased vision. It can mean increased encouragement for those around us. Oftentimes we get into this individualistic bubble where we feel like our actions only affect ourselves. That's never the case. There's no sin that you could ever commit that would only affect you and you alone. If you're in the mire of sin, if if you're in the mire of sin and despair, you're going to tear the other people in your life down with you. 
you're going to tear your family, your friends down with you. But in contrast, when Christ rescues you from that, when he puts your feet on a solid rock, you can bring an increased encouragement to those around you. The aroma of Christ's love and grace will go with you wherever you go. God can use even our failures for his glory. Now again, that doesn't mean that we should go and sin that grace may abound. It doesn't mean that we should seek out sin. We don't need to do that. Sin will find us. Failure will find us. We don't seek it out, and when we're obedient, sometimes we can get from A to B on a let easier path. We're disobedient, God kind of takes us on a more difficult road. So obedience is a good thing, but when we fail, God can even use those failures. It doesn't mean that he's done with us. It doesn't mean that we're cast aside. We need to know how to deal with the failure. We need to know that it's not the end. That's why Christ died for our failures. Christ didn't die for good Christians. There's only one good Christian. His name is Jesus. Christ died to rescue us, to bring us out of the pit. Even when we fail, he brings us out. So in this passage, Paul shows us that there, there is such a thing as godly grief, that though it's unpleasant, it can produce good things in our lives. Increased holiness, increased vision. And the way that we grab hold of that is by repentance, turning to him. Change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. As a people of God, we need to be people of repentance. People who are grieved over our sin. People who change when God calls us to. There's a story from the Middle Ages about a young woman who was said to be expelled from heaven. And she was told to go and get the most valuable thing to God and bring it back. And if she got the most valuable thing to God, then she would be allowed back into heaven. So she searched the world for things that might be honoring to God. She got a few drops of the blood of a dying martyr. She collected coins from a destitute widow who had given all that she had to the poor. She brought back the remnants of a Bible from an eminent evangelist. She brought back the dust of the shoes of missionaries who served many years in a distant land, but she, she was still turned away. One day she was watching and there was a small boy playing by a fountain. She saw a man ride, uh, ride up on horseback, dismounted to take a drink. When he saw the boy playing, he thought of his own childhood innocence. But he looked into the water of the fountain and saw a reflection of his heart and face. He was overcome by the sin in his life, and in that moment he wept years, tears of repentance. The young woman took one of those tears back to heaven, where she was received with joy. Our repentance is valuable to God. He doesn't want us to destroy us. He doesn't want to condemn us. He wants to improve us, make us into the people that he wants us to be. And when we repent, we grab a hold of that. We say, God, I need you. I don't want to live in the pit anymore. I need you to change me and transform me. And he'll do it. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Imagine yourself as, living, as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. He knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. 
What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building up a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that even though we fail, yet there's grace that's found in you when we repent. Lord, I pray that we would live lives of repentance, that we would keep short accounts with you, that our grief over our actions or who we are would not lead us to despair, but would lead us to repentance. And we pray that as we repent, you would use even our failures, even our brokenness to bring glory and honor to you. We love you. We thank you for using us despite our flaws. In Christ's name I pray.